Thanks for listening. This is Contemplate, a Bible teaching ministry of Pastor David Robinson and brought to you by Acts Church in Vancouver, Washington. Today we're in Acts chapter 3, where a man who was lame from birth has been healed. And we'll learn a lot as Peter gives the glory to God. Here's Pastor David. Last time we were in Acts 3, we went through the first 10 verses or so, and we saw uh, Peter and John, and they came to the temple. It was the second time of sacrifice during the day. There were two sacrifices during the day each day. This was the second one. It was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Lots of people came. And they were next to this gate called the Beautiful Gate. It was this big, huge gate, and all these people were coming through. And they had brought this guy who was lame. He could not walk. He hadn't been able to walk since birth. And he was sitting there. And Peter and John come by, and Peter calls out to the guy and says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, basically, get up. You're healed. Okay? And so this guy does. He gets healed. And we see him get up instantly and walk. And he goes through the temple. And that's kind of where we left it. This guy's praising God and leaping around and doing all this stuff. This guy who had been lame from birth, this guy who everyone knew because he had been brought there daily. They all knew him. They all knew that he had been lame from birth. So this is a big miracle. And there's all these people sort of amazed. And that's kind of where we left ourselves the last time we did an Acts message a couple weeks ago. Now we'll start at verse 11 and we're really going to cover some ground today. I'm going to get all the way through the rest of chapter three and into chapter four. So, um, you know, that's, that's, really a lot for me to try to do. So I'll try to do it in the next four hours and and not more than that. So um, let's start with Acts 3.11. It says, now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So this guy, he's held on to them. Okay, remember, this is the guy that they've just healed. He's come in with me. He doesn't have to hold on them to walk because he can walk just fine. He's holding on to them. He's, he's adhering himself is really kind of what the word implies, right? He's, he's, he's binding himself to them. Now, why is this? Because, not because he thought that they were responsible for the miracle, okay? We already heard in verse 9 that he was walking and leaping and praising God. He knew that it was God who had performed the miracle, who had the power to do it. Yet he wanted to be around Peter and John. Why? Because God was doing some amazing things through them. He just got healed. He didn't want to be separated from his benefactors, those who had come and and through the power of God had healed him, right? And he wanted to see maybe what they do next or hear why this happened and how this happened. So he's, he's connected to them. He's right with them. And everybody, of course, is running to see them, to see what's going on. They're running to Peter and John. It, it, it's basically, the word sort of denotes that, that they're gathering a large crowd, a multitude of people. These people are all sort of, uh, of uh, hearing about this thing and they're running together. The best that I can do to sort of give you an idea of what was going on here. Remember, there were a ton of people there. Like, I, like we talked about last time, all these people in Jerusalem come to watch this sacrifice and go to this service, basically, that they have. So there's a lot of people, and they're all running. And when I, when I tried to think about what would this be like, what would it look like, what's the best that we could imagine for this type of thing, I thought, when I was in school, and somebody yelled, fight, right? And everybody went, I know none of you did, because you're all very mature and you don't have any bloodlust, but... I went to see the fight. I was like, fight, who's fighting? And you're just, everyone's just converging on this thing, right? It's instantly, nothing will get a crowd gathered faster than saying fight when you're in school. 
Okay, and so that is sort of like this. Now, there's no fight going on. Don't, it's not a theological issue. Don't get confused here. There's no fight going on. But this, they're, they're basically saying, look, there's this guy. Do you know this guy that sat at the gate? And we're gonna, I'm going to call him Duke. Okay, I'm gonna, because the Bible doesn't give his name, and I like the name Duke, and I wanted to name my son Duke, but my wife said I could not name him Duke. In any case, so they're like, hey, do you know Duke? You know Duke? And they're like, yeah, Duke, the guy who's, who's lame, who sits out at the gate every single day, you know, begging for alms, asking for money because he can't work because he's lame. Yeah, I know that guy. And they're like, yeah, he's in the temple leaping around and running around, walking around right now. Okay, now when you hear something like that and you know you know something amazing and incredible has happened, you're going to go check it out. And that's what they're doing. These people are all running, literally running over to form a big crowd to see what's happened. When we have, remember, Peter and John and this guy kind of holding on to him, staying right here. So we have these three here, and everyone's going to come over and find out what's going on. They're going to find out what's going on. So um, the next thing that happens is it says that they're in Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch. So what is this place? Uh, Solomon's porch is on the east side of the temple. And it's, it's not a porch like the thing where you have a barbecue in your backyard, okay? This is a huge space. They call it Solomon's. There's a number of, of guesses, is what they really are, in my opinion. Guesses about why they call it Solomon's porch. Now, you'll, you may recall, historically, that the temple that Solomon built was destroyed, okay? Completely and utterly destroyed. And this temple that we're talking about here, this is a long time later. This is a new temple that was built. But some people say it's called Solomon's porch because it was built in the style of something that exists in Solomon's temple. That seems unlikely based on the architecture to me. Um, some people say it's because the foundation was still there in that section of the temple from Solomon's temple. And so when they built this porch, this portico, they called it Solomon's. And then some people say that there were actually building materials that had been broken down when the temple was destroyed that were left, and they built the porch with those. I don't know which one is true, but somehow this thing had a connection to Solomon. And so they called it Solomon's Portico. And this was a, a big area, okay? And it was, they had these Corinthian columns. You just got to think kind of classic Greek columns, right? These things are 37 feet high. It's about three and a half stories. And they're running just down the line like this. This is a big area, big enough for thousands of people to gather. So this is a, this is, like I say again, not your back deck, not your porch like you're thinking of. Just think really big Greek looking area to meet with lots of pillars. Okay. That's what we're talking about. South Solomon's porch. So they're there. We actually hear that Jesus was in this area and John, we read about that. And then later in Acts in chapter five, we'll find out that the church, the early church is meeting. They come to the temple and they meet here in Solomon's portico. So it's kind of, it's not super important, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Again, like I say, it's situated in the east side of the temple. And, and a lot of people like to gather there, especially in the winter time, because it would get the most sun. So it'd be a little bit warmer. So this is a place that people regularly gather. That's where uh, Peter and John go to, and they're standing there as this crowd starts to gather around them. Okay, let's uh, go to the next verse, 312. It says, So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Okay. It says Peter responded. So although we don't have it here in the text, it's clear that he was asked a question. And it's clear because the word used here, the Greek word for responded, 
always suggests that there was a question. It's always an answer to a question. He responded to a question. So they're asking him some kind of question. What question are they asking him? I've got a decent guess. They're like, what? What happened? Did you guys, what did you guys do? We know this guy. This guy was lame. How was he walking around? What's the deal? What's going on? What happened? Did you guys do this? So that's going on. Based on his answer, it seems clear that some of them were sort of wondering or suggesting that somehow Peter and John had done this somehow in their own power or through some sort of, you know, ability of theirs. Um, and, and Peter does what every uh, good Christian person ought to do when something amazing happens, and he gave the glory to God, right? He said, why are you looking at me? Don't look at me like I did this. This is something that God did. God did this thing. Now, it's interesting that he says that because, in fact, it's not like Peter didn't do anything. It's not like he didn't do anything. The last time that we were uh, meeting, talking about Acts, we talked about the amount of faith that Peter would have had to exercise in order to have this miracle happen. He's walking. There are tons of people around. He sees a guy that's completely lame and has the faith from the pride of the Holy Spirit to tell this guy to get up. Now, if I'm walking in a big crowd, like we talked about last time, I see somebody who's in a wheelchair or whatever, it's going to take an incredible amount of faith for me to, in front of a bunch of other people, just declare, hey, get out of your wheelchair. You know, that's just, that's going to take a lot of faith. Then he goes and he pulls the guy out. We talked about how the guy could have just fallen down. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He just believes. He has faith that this is, that this is going to happen. So he definitely did something. What did he do? He exercised faith. Where did he get that faith? He got it from God. Who does the glory go to? Well, certainly the power for the healing was the power of the Holy Spirit, not Peter's power. And even Peter's faith was given to him by God. Our gifts, those gifts that we have, they come from God. They come from God. Even those who don't know God, don't believe that God exists, reject Jesus, even follow another uh, religion, whatever it is, when they see success, when their gifts are used well, those gifts still come from God. Even though they're not Christians, even though they're not whatever, God has created them to be who they are and has given them those gifts. When they use the gifts and receive honor or glory for it and take it on themselves, that's when bad things happen. That's when bad things happen. We'll see in chapter 12 when we get there that Herod Agrippa was given a bunch of glory and did not give the glory to God, and something really bad happened to him. Spoiler alert, he was eaten by worms, okay? The Bible is so cool, isn't it? I love love stories like that. It's just like, yeah, I guess I'll give God the glory. That's the thing is you've got to recognize Aristotle was a philosopher before Jesus uh, was, on, was, was on the earth. Aristotle was a philosopher and he would talk about the idea that the good person, the person who knows, when I say good person, I mean the person who knows the good. So think about, you know, politics or any of these things. What we're seeking when we, when we vote for a politician or when we do something like that, we're seeking to find the person who knows the good, right? We're looking for the good. And Aristotle would say the person who knows the good is the person who recognizes those good works in creation or even those good works made by man and gives proper honor to who it's due. So when the Christian says, I recognize that you've made me with this gift and I honor you for it rather than taking the honor for myself, that's a person who's seeking the good. Aristotle would say, that person is a person who's seeking 
after the good. Now, that does not mean that every time somebody compliments you, you've got to say, it's God, right? So if somebody comes and says, wow, you look really nice today. You look so pretty today. And you say, no, 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 not me. God has given me this incredible gift of beauty. Praise him, right? It's, it's not, you don't have to do that. The other week I came up, Doug Kiros, who's awesome on the guitar back here, uh, after church, a couple weeks ago after he played, I came up and said, man, that was really awesome. And, and Doug, as he should, he said, man, it was all God. And I said, well, it wasn't that awesome, you know. Come on. <laughs> Kidding. Kidding. But, but he's right, right? The point is, God's given him the gift. Yes, he's been faithful to use it well, but it was for God. And the gift was from God. And he recognizes that, right? And that's where we have got to be. We've got to be in that place. So we have, uh, we have Peter immediately saying, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about God. And he's doing the right thing by doing it. Now, let's move on to the next verse. Uh, verse number 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Let's keep going to 14. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and kill... Oh, let's stop there. Let's stop at 14. Okay. I don't want to bite off too much. The first part he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what's he doing? Peter is instantly grounding what he's going to tell them in the idea that this is not a new thing. This God that he's going to tell you about, not me, but God, is the God of your fathers. The God that you're in this temple being a good Jew coming at the prayer time. These were devout men. They were devoted to God. He's saying, this is the same God, not a different God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's where he starts. Not some new thing, not some magic trick, not whatever. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then immediately he takes that, this God that we serve, and immediately connects him to Jesus, right? He glorified his servant, Jesus. He's instantly saying, Jesus, God's servant, the Messiah. He was the Messiah, right? That's what he's telling us. And he's saying that you delivered him. You, these are the people. This was in Jerusalem. This is not long after Jesus had been crucified. He says, you all delivered him to be crucified. And even Pilate, who was the Roman, who actually sentenced Jesus to death, ultimately at the request of the Jews, even he saw that Jesus was innocent, and was willing to let him go, but you delivered him to them. And not only did you do that, not only did you take this man who even the Gentiles could see was innocent, and, and trust me, the Romans had no problem killing people. It was kind of their thing. And so if there was any reason to do it, especially when the Jews were asking for it as a favor, they would have done it. So the fact that Pilate was saying it's, it shouldn't be done suggests it was really, really obvious that Jesus didn't deserve to die says, you're calling for that, but then to add insult to injury, but you ask that a murderer be released to you. That's Barabbas. Barabbas, if you read the story, uh, the passion um, you know, part of, of the scripture where Christ is crucified, you see that they get this guy named Barabbas released to them who was a murderer. So they said, take the Holy One, the just one, and kill him. Give us Barabbas. Now, when he says the Holy One, and he says the just they knew exactly what he was saying. These Jewish men knew there's only one who's holy. That's God. 
So they knew that Peter was saying to them directly, Jesus was God. Jesus was God. And then the just, another name that's clearly suggesting the deity that Jesus was God and suggesting that he was just, showing that he was not guilty when they had sentenced him or asked him to die. Okay? And it says, and killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Now, that's a big, big verse, so let's stop there for just a second. This is the heart of the gospel. And we see this. We've already seen it. This is Several times we see this, just early on in Acts, we see the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus, that he died and that he rose again. So they say, look, here, here's the thing. You guys, you specifically, these were the guys. These people were in the mob who was calling for the death of Jesus. That's who, that's who it is. It's not just some abstract thing, okay? Like you've denied or rejected. He's saying, you specifically, you were one of the ones yelling out, crucify him. And he's God, and we've seen him alive after he was dead. We're witnesses that Jesus Christ is alive. Now, this is going to be a difficult thing for these guys because certainly at this point, they certainly knew who Jesus was. Like he says, they were there. These things did not happen in a corner. Everybody knew what was going on. They knew who Jesus was. They knew what he was preaching. They knew that many of them were probably there in that mob that asked him to be crucified, and they'd probably heard the resurrection stories. Remember that there were over 500 people who witnessed Jesus alive after he was dead. So they've been hearing this stuff, and you've got to be thinking if you're one of these guys, oh man, I hope that's not true, because I was yelling, crucify him. So I hope it's not true that God raised him from the dead, proving that he's the son of God, because that would mean I'm in a lot of trouble. Luckily for them, the Pharisees had been putting forth this rumor that the disciples had stolen the body. They stole the body from the tomb. And so they could sort of, you know, uh, just say, okay, that's probably what happened. Until they run into those who say, he rose from the dead and we witnessed it. And guess what? Let me prove it to you. He's still got power. So we look at the next verse. 316 says, and his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. They knew this guy and they now saw that he was healed. The faith which comes through him, that's Jesus, has given him, that's the, that's the layman, this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So in the presence of you all, in front of all you people, this guy who you know and knew was lame has been made well by what? By the power in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now here's the thing. People... Human beings don't have power in their name. They don't. If you go around and you find a sick person and you say to them, in the name of Pastor David, get up and walk, I just, I'll tell you now, I'll save you the trouble. Not going to work. There's no power in my name. There's only power in God. There's only power in God. So when they're saying, this is Jesus, God of your fathers, Jesus, the Messiah, the Holy One, who's God, who rose again to prove that he was God, and now even to prove that and the rest of it, I'm showing you that this miracle was done in his name, and the only way, could, only way miracles could be done in his name is if he was not a man but was in fact God. So this is the argument that Peter is rolling out for these guys. He's showing them step by step that Jesus is God. All the while, their hearts are likely just being convicted, and they're sitting there and they're saying, I am in big trouble because I asked for him to be killed. 
I asked for him to be killed. And that he's now, through miracles and miraculous signs, showing and proving that I was wrong, he was God, that he was the Messiah. So, let's go to verse 17. It says, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would sever, he has thus fulfilled. Now, he says that they did it in ignorance. Um, sometimes we do evil in ignorance to some extent, which is to say we do not understand the full extent of the evil that we're doing. We may know we're doing something wrong, but we don't understand all of the implications of it. We don't understand how far it goes. Even Jesus, as he's on the cross and the Romans are crucifying him, is saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They're ignorant of the, the whole level of their, of their crime here, of their sin. So he's saying, you know, you were ignorant. Your leaders were ignorant to some extent, right? Paul talks about how he was ignorant. He goes in chapter 17, we'll read, he's talking to the Athenians, and he says, all your idol worship, that was ignorance. You were ignorant. But they're not talking about the kind of ignorance that makes it okay. They're not saying, because you were ignorant, no big deal. They still asked for a man, which lets us assume they thought he was a man. That's basically what he's saying. You thought he was just a man. But they still asked for a man who was innocent to be killed and a murderer to be released to them. Right? And they can say, look, it was a mob mentality. Our leaders, they were calling for it. We were just kind of going along with the crowd. They can say whatever they want. But the fact is, although they may have been ignorant that they were killing the Christ, the Son of God, they definitely knew that they were killing a man and a good man. Even the Gentiles knew that. So they were definitely guilty. And we are the same way. We are often ignorant of the full extent of our sin. As a matter of fact, it is to some extent because of that ignorance, willful ignorance. In other words, ignorance that we on purpose don't look into all, uh, we don't think far enough into all the implications when we do something. But we're not thinking about who all might be hurt by this. How big, this, this small thing that I do, what are all the possibilities for harm to others through this? We don't think about that when we just want to do something. We just go do it. We don't think through all the implications, the long term. We don't think about the fact that Christ suffered on the cross for our sin, meaning that our sin, every time we do it, was added to what Christ suffered. So these guys, yeah, they called for his death. That's true. But every time that you reject him, every time that you um, deny him for yourself, refuse to submit to him, all of those times, all of that sin, all of that was placed on him, on the cross. Every time you do it. Every time you do it. And you may be ignorant, okay? So if you don't know the Lord, if you haven't accepted uh, the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and decided to follow him, that means that most likely you've heard that other people believe that he's God, that he's the only way to heaven, that he's the only way to be right with God. You've heard those claims. Now, if you hear claims like that, there's something you better check out. There's something you better look into. But oftentimes, we just keep scrolling through the Facebook feed or go to the movies with our friends or move on this way or go to the bar or do whatever we're doing, whatever we were going to do anyway, and we put it off. I don't want to think about it right now. So is thinking about Jesus something you need to do in your life? If so, it's the most important thing you'll ever do. 
and I hope you won't put it off for another minute. Now, if you still have questions, you're not sure what's next, or you just need help figuring things out, come see us at Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington this Sunday morning. We'd love to help you find the peace and hope that can only be found in Christ. Get directions and all the info you need at axechurchnw.org or call 360-885-9000. Hope to meet you this Sunday. Thanks for listening and be sure and check out the next episode for more with Pastor David Robinson here on Contemplate.